Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, chapter 20. We only have two more chapters left. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. (laughs) In a good way, hopefully. Judges, chapter 20. By the way, if you are interested in dedicating your child at some point in the future, we will have more opportunities. Please come talk with one of us, myself or Mike, uh, Kate. We'd, we'd love to get you down on the schedule for that. So Judges chapter 20, if you're new here, uh, the book of Judges is all about what life was like for Israel in the Old Testament before they had a king. And if you look up on screen, here's a quick overview of Judges. There's an introduction in the first two chapters, and then Judges gets very specific. And number two there, the stories of the Judges, guys like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. And now we're finally in the conclusion section. The conclusion is really long. And in this conclusion, conclusion section, there is a verse that's repeated quite a bit. So Judges 17.6, let's read this together. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then it's partially repeated again, chapter 18, verse 1. Let's read it together. In those days, Israel had no king. And then chapter 19, verse 1, guess what's repeated again? In those days, Israel had no king. And if you've been here for the series, how is that working out for Israel not to have a king? Not very well. And it's not just talking about human leadership, because they're going to get a king eventually, guys like David and Solomon. And as good as some of those guys are, they all fail. They all sin. So I think Judges is talking about in those days, really God is not their king. They are not submitting to God. They are not surrendering to God. They are mixing God with all sorts of other beliefs. And we've seen in this conclusion section that when Jesus is not your king, when God is not your king, you're going to make God in your own image. We saw that in chapter 17 and 18. Last week we saw in chapter 19 that if you If Jesus is not your king, you're going to redefine what sexuality is to you. You're going to rewrite the boundaries of sexuality because chapter 19, we saw a Levite, a priest, supposedly a man of God. He takes a concubine as his wife, which was a problem, and he uses her, really views her as a piece of property. While they're spending the night in the tribe of Benjamite territory, we find that a group of men from Gibeah and Benjamin surround the house. They knock on the door and say, send out that Levite, send out that man so that we can have sex with him. I know that's shocking, but that's what it said in chapter 19, that a group of men wanted to basically gang rape this Levite. So the Levite, looking out for himself, he doesn't offer himself, he offers his concubine and sends her out for the night, and she is raped and abused all night. And the next morning he comes out, he sees her lying on the threshold and says, get up, you know, what are you doing? And then by the end of chapter 19, do you remember what happens to the concubine's body? He cuts it up into how many pieces? Twelve. And he sends each piece of the body to the different parts of Israel. Not very encouraging story, is it? But when God is not your king, you will redefine what sexuality is. You'll redefine how you'll treat people. And now we're going to continue this story in chapter 20, and you think, how can it get any worse? Let's start in verse 1, and if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We do this out of respect that it is God's holy word. 
And I want you to pay attention some more and see some other things that happen when Jesus is not our king, when God is not our king. We're going to see some different results here. So verse 1, then all Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, this is the same guy from chapter 19, the husband of the murdered woman said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin, so this is Israelite territory, to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. So you may be seated. So do you see what's going on here? This Levite, he is speaking to about 400,000 Israelites, telling them why he sent the concubines body pieces to them, trying to get them inflamed and incensed so that they can help him inflict revenge upon the people of Gibeah. And they are gathered here. Here's a map of Israel. The green part is their territory. They are gathered basically right in the center there, just north of Jerusalem at Mizpah. And what's remarkable is that throughout the book of Judges, we haven't seen really any unity since Deborah. But now, at a time like this, finally 400,000 of them gather together, and they are ready to do something as a result of what happened to this concubine in Benjamite territory. Which leads me to my first point. When Jesus is not your king, when Jesus is not your king, we will protect our own image at all costs. We see this actually with the Levite. Because if you look at his story while they're gathered, did the Levite tell the whole story of what happened? He told most of it. But look back at verse 5. He said, while they're gathered, during the night the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. Now what part does he conveniently leave out? Instead of offering himself or trying to protect them, he sent out his concubine. And they rape her and abuse her all night. So he conveniently leaves out the part that he shoves his concubine out the door to save his own skin. By the way, I said this last week, this reminds us of another high priest who would never do that. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who didn't sacrifice anyone else. He sacrificed himself on the cross with his own body to be abused so that you and I could be forgiven. But the Levite is not like that. So we see here when Jesus is not our king and he's not the Levite's king, he makes it all about himself. He protects his own image. And do we ever do that today as a church, individually? (laughs) Do we ever leave convenient parts of the story as we're telling about something that happened and make ourselves look a little bit better? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if Jesus is not our king, something has to be our king. 
And most of the time, it's going to be like the Levite. We're going to look out for me, myself, and I. Let's keep going. Verse 8. It says in verse 8, while they're at this assembly, all the men rose up together as one. Notice that word, as one. They're united, saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots, which is kind of like spiritual dice. We'll take 10 men out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel and 100 from 1,000 and 1,000 from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. So 10% of the fighting men. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. So Israel failed to unite every other time. And now finally, when it comes to their own countrymen, they are willing to unite and they are willing to fight in a civil war. Verse 12, the tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. By the way, if the Israelites actually wipe out the Benjamites, will that actually get rid of the evil among them? If we just get rid of all the bad people in our society, will that actually get rid of the evil among us? No. Oftentimes we think that. You know, come election season, we think if we just get the right people in office and get all the bad people out of there, whatever that means, then everything's going to be fine. But it doesn't work that way. We can get rid of all the evil around us, but really evil, really sin is where? It's in us too. There's a very famous story. You've heard of C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. One of his spiritual mentors, at least some of the books he read, was by a guy named G.K. Chesterton. I would encourage you to check him out sometime. G.K. Chesterton. And it is said that he entered an essay competition. And the content of the essay was, what is wrong with the world? And you had to write an essay in response to what you thought was wrong with the world. And you know what G.K. Chesterton said? He said, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) That's a man who understands that, you know, what's wrong with the world is not just out there, but it's in here. (laughs) We can do all this stuff to purge the evil among us, but it doesn't really deal with my own heart. This is what the Israelites need. So verse 13 at the end there says this, but the the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. They would not give over the people who did this. Verse 14, from their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized, let's read it together, 26,000 swordsmen. That's a lot of swordsmen, isn't it? From their towns. In addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were what? What's it say? Left-handed. How many of you are special and left-handed? All right. It says each of these left-handed troops, they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So these are very talented, almost like expert riflesmen for that time. From Benjamin. Verse 17, Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered how many? 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. And I can't help but think if they would have done this when they were fighting the Canaanites, it would be a different story. 
So this brings me to my second point. The second thing that happens when Jesus is not our king is we will not only make it about ourselves, number one, we'll also make life about our own family or our own people or our own tribe or our own racial group. We actually see this with the Benjamites. The Israelites come to them and say, hey, give us the men who did this. Give us the man and the men in chapter 19 who raped and abused the concubine. And they're like, no, we're not going to do it. We're willing to muster up 26,000 troops, some of whom are our best troops, our left-handed guys, and we are going to fight you for these men. So the Benjamites, in this case, are making life not about Jesus or about God. They're making it about their own people. And do we ever make our lives not just about ourselves, but about our own people or our own families or our own blood? Absolutely. One theologian said it like this, their bloodlines are thicker than their covenant lines. They don't care about what God thinks. They just want to protect their own. You know, to make this really practical, I was thinking about child dedication today. And as a parent, you are called to put your children's needs before your own. But you are not called to put your children's needs first in your life above everything else. Because if you make your child the number one thing in your life, the number one thing that defines you and drives you and identifies you, boy, you're going to screw up your kids big time. You're either going to overparent them because you know, they just can't mess up, or you're going to underparent them because you're too concerned about what they think about you or how you hurt them because they become too important. But if Jesus is our king, we're not going to make it ultimately about our children. Yes, they're going to be important. Yes, we're going to raise them in the ways of the Lord, but we're going to make it all about Jesus, even if that means tough love and discipline. Well, let's keep going. Verse 18. So we have a battle. If you look on screen, actually, the battle is going to be between the Israelites, all 400,000 of them, versus the Benjamites, all 26,700 of them. And who would win in a battle of 400,000 and 26,000? Answer? The 400,000. So you would think. Verse 18. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down, let's read it together, 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. And then I'll keep reading verse 22, but the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. So who won the first battle? The Israelites or the Benjamites? And we all say the Benjamites. So the Israelites zero, the Benjamites won, okay? Verse 23, The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, go up against them. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another, let's read it, 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. So who won the second battle now, the Israelites or the Benjamites? And the answer is Benjamites. So we see on screen now the Israelites zero and the Benjamites how many? Two. 
By the way, how many Israelites have already died in two days of fighting? How much? 40,000. That's more than the population of Adams County, okay? By the way, did you notice that they are inquiring of God, they are asking of God what to do, and yet God is allowing them to be defeated? What's up with that? Well, let's keep reading to find out maybe some clues to how to answer that. Verse 26. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of whom? Aaron. Who's Aaron? That's Moses' brother, the high priest. So Phinehas is the grandson of this guy, of Aaron. He was ministering before the Ark of the Covenant. And they asked him, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And so do you notice the difference here in this third question versus the first two? If you look at it carefully, the first time they ask God to help them in verse 18, I have it highlighted here. They say, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? So do you notice what they're not asking? Did you notice what they're assuming? They are assuming that they are called to do this, that they should do this, and they are saying, who of us is to go first? They don't even stop to consider whether they should be doing this or not. The second time they ask, they're a little bit humbler because they're weeping until evening, and they ask, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? So their hearts are getting a little bit softer, And they're weeping, and God says to go, but they're defeated again. It's only by this third time in verse 28, look at what they ask. Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? And then what do they say? Or not. So finally they are recognizing that, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe God didn't really want us to do this in the first place. Maybe we should have asked that question to begin with. And so I want to relate this to us. When God is not our king, when Jesus is not our king, here's what we do, number three. We will ask God to bless our plans. We'll ask God to bless my plans. Do you ever do that? Where you come up with a plan. It's a great plan, you know? It's numbered. It has footnotes. And you say, God, if you'll just bless this plan, just sprinkle a little bit of blessing on here, the plan that I already made, that's pretty good. When really God wants us to say, hey, what is the plan? Do you want me to do this? Or or the scary thing for type A people, how many of you are type A planners? Take the plan, rip it up, burn it, Lord, and do something different. That's a scary prayer. But that's often what God wants us to do. He wants us to be so available that he can rewrite the plan and take the plan rather than sprinkle on some blessing of God, you have to bless my plan. I think Israel by this third time is finally starting to realize what God is up to. You know, I also think there's another thing at play here too. If you read the book of Romans chapter one, Paul talks about the different sins that people face when God is not their king. And it says three times in Romans one that God gives them over to their sin. God gives them over to their sin. God gives them over to their sin. God will sometimes as a form of judgment He will intervene directly, but sometimes he'll just take his hands off and say, you want that sin? 
You want that thing in your life so badly? Here you go. Be my guest. See how life works out for you. Sometimes God, as a form of judgment, just kind of withdraws his hand and says, you know what, you want that? We'll let you experience the full consequences of that. I think that's also at play here too. You want to punish the Benjamites? Be my guest. See where that gets you. Let's keep going to the third battle. So we are at verse 29. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Verse 29, Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. This is battle number three. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30 men fell on the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, we are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the road. So do you see the battle plan going on here? The Israelites, they attack Gibeah, the Benjamites. They lead the Gibeites, if I can say that, away from the city, leaving the city exposed. And then it says in verse 33, that when this happened, all the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. So another force came charging in to this unguarded, undefended city. Verse 34, then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day, the Israelites struck down how many Benjamites? Let's say it. 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Now, the rest of the text is going to give us a little bit more detail on the battle. I'm just going to read a couple verses. It says, Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. Those who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city. So we'll stop right there. So while they are attacking Gibeah, they're drawn away. Another ambush comes in, and they put how much of the city to the sword? The whole city. And that would include not just men, but whom? Women and children. If you keep reading at the end of the chapter, verse 46 now, we'll skip down. It says, on that day, how many people fell? 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. So 600 escaped. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put how many towns? All the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found, including women and children. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. Anybody troubled by that? You know, if you read about the Israelites in the Old Testament, they were often called to go to the Canaanites, the Amalekites, their enemies, and do this same, of, do this same kind of warfare, which I know bothers us, and we'll talk about that in a future sermon. But they were called to do this to their enemies. But now they are doing that same battle practice against whom? Their own people. So they're not supposed to attack Benjamin to begin with, and now they are trying to exterminate the Benjamites, all except 600 now remain. So this brings me to my final point, number four. 
Well, I guess, yeah, the Israelites, you can go back to that slide real quick. The Israelites won, Benjamites two, but are there really any winners here in this battle? No. And so this brings me to point number four. When Jesus is not our king, we will often fight among ourselves. When Jesus is not our king, just like the Israelites, we'll engage in civil war with our own people. When we're not engaged in the mission to do what God has called us to do, we will make life about ourselves like the Levites, number one, like the Benjamites, number two, we'll be like the Israelites, and number three, God bless my plans, do what I want to do, and we'll even fight among ourselves. So a question for you this morning is, do we as churches and Christians ever fight among ourselves? (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) Of course we do. In fact, oftentimes the older the church is, I don't mean having old people, but the longer the church has been around, the more fights you have, even generational fights. So what year did our church start? Does anyone know? 1893. And Pastor Max, who used to pastor here, he was the only one alive at that time, he often says. Yeah. (laughs) But since we've been around for a long time, oftentimes some of our battles within our own church family can go on for years. Sometimes this will cause one family or one person to leave, because let's face it, we often come to church and we leave a church based on relationships. And then we'll go to somewhere else until we have another conflict, and then we go somewhere else, kind of repeats. Sometimes I've even seen in churches that are really historic and older that, you know, generations or families may kind of put their feet down and say, well, I'm not leaving, I'm just going to wait till they leave. And they just kind of hunker down, don't really look at each other, gets awkward for years at a time. Sometimes it can be over the most minor stuff. If you go back and say, well, what really caused this issue? Well, it was this thing, and then it was this thing. It just kept building, little thing after little thing that was never really addressed. If Jesus is not our king, we will often fight among our very own people and have our own civil war too. And so let me end today by saying, how do we actually address this? Because let's face it, if you stay here long enough, you're going to have conflict. How's that for an attractive statement? Come join our church, you'll have conflict. But that's reality. (laughs) Because we're a family and families sometimes fight. But you have to fight well, according to scripture. So three things how to handle conflict. Number one, be the first to reach out and make things right. Be the first, if you have conflict in our church family or with someone else in your life, to reach out and make things right, whether you're the one that offended them or they're the one that offended you. doesn't matter. Someone once said as a Christian that in the game of forgiveness, it's always your move first. Here's how Jesus said it, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. So we don't have any details, but you're there worshiping and you remember, oh yeah, so-and-so has something against me. They don't like me right now. Something's going on. Leave your gift there in front of the altar, it says, and first go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So even if someone has something against you, you are to take the initiative, Jesus says, and try to seek reconciliation and forgiveness and work it out. You are even to do that before you come and worship. Jesus will flip this a little bit in Mark 11. Mark 11, verse 25, 
He'll say, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone. So before it was, if somebody holds something against you, but now he says, if you hold anything against anyone, what's he say to do? Gossip about them? Forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And so interestingly, he, he connects that, hey, if you want to be forgiven by God, then you need to forgive others. And if you don't, that implies that what? God won't forgive you. It's not that you earn God's forgiveness, but a person who's been changed by the grace of God will be much easier, will much more likely show that they'll forgive someone else. So whether someone has something against you or you have something against someone else, forgiveness is always our move. The ball's always in our court. Now, this may mean that you forgive them from the heart. I mean, that's what Mark 11 implies. So if the offense is minor, it doesn't mean you have to check in with everyone every time something's wrong. You may just be called to forgive them from the heart and overlook an offense. But if you can't do that, then you need to go to them face-to-face, one-on-one, and work it out. Let's keep going. Number two, two more points quickly. How to deal with conflict. Number two, forgiveness comes by focusing on the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. And this really is the most important point. If you are struggling to forgive someone, I'm not just going to be up here and say, do it. Try harder. No, what you need to do is focus on the forgiveness you have through God, through Christ and God. Because when you think about that, you think, you know, God is so holy and we've offended God. And if God gave us what we deserve, he would give us an eternity in hell. And he would be righteous and even glorious to do that. That's what we deserve. That's the just punishment, just like a judge would give to a criminal. But God had mercy and grace on us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived the life that you and I failed to live. He died to death that you and I deserve so that we could be reconciled to God. And so the question is, with forgiveness, where would we be if God had not had mercy on us? Where would you and I be if, 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 if God was feeling towards you what you are feeling towards that person you just can't stand, you just want to you know, squish them figuratively? Where would you be? Where would you be if you did to that person, what, you know, what if God did to you what you would like to do to them? Where would you be? But God in his grace had mercy on us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us as enemies. One theologian says it like this when it comes to forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is often granted before you feel it in your heart. Forgiveness is a promise to not bring up the wrong with the person, not bring it up with other people either, and not bring it up in your own thoughts. So it's a promise not to dwell on the hurt or nurse bitterness about it. You're not able to keep a thought from occurring to you, but you certainly don't have to entertain it. One of my mentors said it like this, forgiveness is not taking that person off the hook, but it's taking them off your hook and putting them on God's hook. Because God can deal with it. There's consequences, there's justice. God's gonna do it. Finally, number three, how to deal with conflict. Jesus must be our king and we must be all about his mission. You know, I found that if you are focusing on Jesus and you're focusing on what he's called you to do to go and make disciples and reach out and share the gospel and bring up people in the ways of the Lord, you don't have a lot of time for internal conflicts. And when you do, you deal with them so that we can get on with the mission 
of obeying and surrendering to Jesus. So if he is our king and we are about his mission, a lot of these things will take care of themselves. I want to invite Mike Ford and Nicole. I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and just ask God, what is he calling you to do today in response? He may be calling you to focus more on his forgiveness through Christ. He may be calling you to reach out and initiate a conversation with someone. And I'm sure that if I just said that, you can think of someone that you need to do that with. He may be calling you to spend more time focusing on his love towards you through Christ. What's he calling you to do today?